The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Is there a bag of wool for the little boy who lives down the lane? How many murderers are there on this luxury train? Hey, remember how kids used to get their feet x-rayed in shops? No, but I remember you telling me that they did in episode 394. Quentin in Fulham, he's written in to say, I was surprised at your shock over the use of fluoroscopes and pedoscopes in British shoe shops. In the popular Michael Caine film, Billion Dollar Brain, I mean, Quentin says popular, I'm seeing 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. The hero, spy Harry Palmer, rushes into a shoe shop to use a pedoscope to check the contents of a mysterious thermos flask Hmm. to find... It contains plague-carrying eggs. Of course it does. And of course the uh, shoe shop fluoroscope would uh, be able to tell that. And also, I've been enjoying taking a thermos flask to the park over recent weeks in my one allotted period of exercise per day. The last thing I would want to think is that it uh, contained plague-carrying eggs. (laughs) Plague-carrying coffee? (laughs) Or eggs. Eggs of any kind I do not want in my flask. Anyway, Quentin continues, This would have provided a superb link back to your billion-dollar Fabergé eggs article. Sadly, the moment has passed. Damn it! Ah! So disappointed in myself. You, You made the comic connection in your own head, Quentin. Is that not enough? You've shared it with everyone now. And I appreciate you doing that, Quentin. I'm guessing you haven't seen Billion Dollar Brain or any of the uh, spy uh, movies from the 1960s that began with the Ipcrest file. Oh, is it part of that oh. series? It is, yeah. It's the third in the series, directed by Ken Russell. I'm not a huge fan of Michael Caine, so a spy film starring Michael Caine would not be a combination of elements that I would be particularly excited to absorb. I kind of weirdly am a fan of Michael Caine. Like whenever I've seen Michael Caine in a film, I've thought, yeah, he's he's actually a better actor than you think he is. Because like, there's the cliche, isn't there, that he always plays himself, he never changes his accent. But actually, like, if you see him in um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, where he's really funny, or Hannah and Her Sisters, where he's really convincing, you know, I think... I do think you're a good actor, and yet I've never been motivated to go back to golden period Michael Caine, which is kind of when Michael Caine became Michael Caine, like in films like this. I don't know what it is that's putting me off. Something about the pedestrian nature of a British spy, actually, you know, that would go into a shoe shop to find a plague-carrying egg. I wish James Bond did more of that, <laughs> like going to Argos and using the tiny pencils to brain-spike an enemy. Yeah, I'm not about that. I'm about kind of giant leaps across skyscrapers and that sort of thing in my spy thrillers. If I want to see uh, films about the British retail sector from the 1970s and 80s, I've got the Are You Being Served movie. There's a movie? Well... I've not actually seen the series. It was forbidden in my household when I was growing up. I don't think it's your thing, Helen. Oh, nothing's <laughs> my thing today, is it? I think you'd acknowledge the comic skills of the performers involved, but, I mean, the actual material that they have to work with is, is not really your stuff. I mean, for example, joke number one in the Are You Being Served movie, I, I, it's fresh in my mind because I watched it over Christmas, is um, there's a bloke who's, like, vacuuming the store. And of course, as he vacuums the mannequins, he goes up their dresses. Can you guess what happens? Oh, do they turn out to be real women? Uh, yes. Wendy Richards is there um, looking hot and stocking up some shelves. And as she bends over, he puts the vacuum up her leg and sucks off her knickers. That's literally joke oh. number one, 10 seconds into the movie. Wow. Here's a question from Dom, who says, Ollie, answer me this. Why do so many airports have raffles to win luxury cars? How do they work? Assuming means the raffle, not the luxury cars. Do you get a car in your own country? I see. So he's like, if you're abroad, what's the point of winning a luxury car in a country you do not spend time in? Yes. Well, if you're about to fly abroad, what's the point of entering a lottery in a country you're leaving? You may well go back in a couple of weeks, say, and thus take possession of your luxury car from the airport. Yeah, but you are taking it on trust, aren't you, that the company that you're buying the raffle ticket from are going to bother doing the raffle. I mean, I know it's illegal for them to sell you a ticket and then not do the raffle. But, you know, if you're out the airport, out the country, I mean, who checks? Who does check, Ollie? Who is checking that raffles are legit? It's an interesting loophole because the answer would be the gambling commission if it was a raffle. Uh. But it isn't a raffle for that reason. (gasps) 
Um, <laughs> so you're calling it a raffle, and sometimes, frankly, the people selling you the tickets effectively market it as a raffle, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, um, as we've discussed before, in the example of ITV daytime quizzes, there has to be a element of skill for it to be a competition, and hence unregulated. Um, oh. So the element of skill can be very low, like which of these is a Shakespeare play, uh, Hamlet or Cats, um, but there needs to be an element of skill. So um, if you actually look carefully at, mo- like for example, the biggest company in the UK that does the airport car giveaways is called BOTB, Best of the Best. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a boy band from the late 90s, BOTB, doesn't it? Best of the best. It does, and they'd have a great have video had, like, two singles. set up for them. Yeah. Terminal 5, <laughs> Lamborghini. Oh, my God. Perfect. You know this would have happened. <laughs> and they wouldn't have even got a permit to film near the Lamborghini, and then they would have got chased off after two takes. Uh, anyway, technically, th- that competition you enter when you buy one of their raffle tickets is a spot-the-ball competition. That's what you're actually entering. So there is an element of skill. Uh-huh. So you are kind of taking it on trust, although it still would be illegal if they were selling tickets without giving cars away. And I'm not making any allegations about BOTB. I've been on their website. You can see previous winners who have won the cars. I'm just saying, as a customer, traveling through a transient location, mm. on my way to another international destination, I just wonder how many of those people then get home, forget all about it, never bother to check online who won the raffle that they entered at the airport. You're doing it at the airport because there's nothing else to do. And you'll just forget that you've entered. And also, you didn't go there for that. No, exactly. It's incidental. Whereas, like, the village fate, you might think, okay, every year I enter the raffle, so it's a bit more imprinted on your mind. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So weird, isn't it, that you take it more seriously, you know, winning the pickled pears at the village fate than you would a Lamborghini. (laughs) I don't get the bath balls this year, I'm going to kill someone. Um, But anyway, to answer the question, I mean, why did they end up at airports? I think it's that the the business model of like car giveaways in shopping malls and equivalent locations had been running for a couple of decades. Just because yeah. it's a talking point, people stop and have their picture taken with the thing, they look at the car, it's marketing for the car, they're in a place where yeah. they're buying stuff anyway. Um, and then someone cottoned on, it might have been the bloke who set up BOTB because they've been going for about 25 years. Someone cottoned on that actually in a way the airport executive lounge is the perfect place. Because uh, you've got people who have just spent thousands of pounds on a on a plane seat when they didn't need to, so they're more likely to have a tenner in their pocket to enter a raffle. Well, they probably don't carry cash. <laughs> <laughs> they're in this environment where they can't leave for two hours and have nothing else to do, and they're in a holiday mode, you know, they're kind of in for fun times, and it adds an element of exclusivity to the ambience of the airport, which is often what the building owners of the airport want to create, isn't it? That's why they have luxury brands in there. So they like having a Ferrari on the concourse, whether or not it's actually advertising a slightly grubby competition is not important. What's important is you walk into the airport lounge and you see five luxury cars in front of you and you think, oh, hmm. this is a flash place. So it kind of works for everybody. Right. I try to remember if I've ever seen it or whether it's the kind of thing that I tune out because I am, A, not interested, and B, in airports, just looking for the space between the people yes. to avoid collisions. About the only bit of driving theory I remember from my brief learning to drive career. Look at the spaces between the cars. Or the laptop charges. That's what I'm looking for these days. Oh, yeah, good, a good armchair with an inbuilt plug. Yeah. Mm. Oh, it's got USB. Thank you very much. Five minutes from WH Smith and it's got USB. Perfect location. Thank you, 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> but then when Dom says, do you get a car in your own country? Where, where is the car? <laughs> where does the car end up? Uh, Well, I've been on the website of BOTB, as I said. They are Britain's largest purveyor of this kind of competition. They say, and I quote, We will deliver your car or other prize anywhere in the world, free of charge. All cars are delivered with UK VAT paid. There may, however, be further import slash registration or luxury goods duties in certain countries, which in general we do not pay for. And in Mm. some cases, it may be preferable to take a cash alternative and then buy the equivalent car in your country, which we can, of course, assist with. Interesting. So the car is just the tip of the prize iceberg. And when they say other prizes, it could just be that you'll win a tote with a picture of the car on it. (laughs) Yeah, and that's actually the case with the big sort of shiny competitions on daytime TV as well, isn't it? Like people, it's funny, isn't it? People are more likely to enter. They must be, otherwise they wouldn't do it. If they see a promo saying, win a brand new Land Rover, than if it said, win the equivalent value of the Land Rover. Like if you could win 60 grand, Mm. they'd be less likely to enter than a car that's worth 60 grand. I don't know why that is, but that is how people operate, clearly. Yeah. Maybe the psychology of it's a finite thing, it's an object, and it is going to be given away. Whereas, again, it's all about that trust, isn't it? Do you trust the person who says, I'm going to give you 60 grand if you win? 
Hmm. Yeah, you've seen the car. It was there and you could win it. Do you trust airport car competitions? And if you don't, what can you trust? (laughs) Here's a question from Alan in Dublin who says, Helen, answer me this. Is it okay to wear team merchandise as a fashion statement, even if you don't support Mm -hmm. the team and are only a casual fan of the sport? Hmm. I really want to get a basketball jersey just to wear at summer to the beach, working from home, and other times it's okay to wear a sleeveless top, but I'm not a huge fan of any team. Mm-hmm. Do I need to pick a team and then start supporting them? <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that there'd be like a significant financial outlay just to a fashion choice. Or can I just buy whichever jersey I think looks the best and then that's where my association ends? I think if a lot of sports fans were being honest with themselves, at childhood anyway one of the reasons that they get drawn to a particular team might be as straightforward as the branding and the graphic design, might it not? It's also one of the major reasons uh, my mum chooses who to bet on in the Grand National. Right. The silks and the name. Like, you know, the the team is being represented by their players and also by their image. So if you are buying into their image, in a sense, you kind of do become a supporter of the team, don't you? Let's just state, which I think regular listeners will know, none of us are sports fans. So... We are answering this question without the emotional attachment to a team and therefore I don't know whether I would feel offended if I was a true supporter of the team that you were just co-opting it for the look and for the breeziness of sleevelessness. So you've got to be aware of those risks that someone else might take it as a sign of affiliation. So like if that team is bad or if the players are notoriously evil, Mm. you are supporting them. And also it just means that people who care about the sport, like not even necessarily that team, will engage you in sports chat yes. based on their their interpretation of your preference. So this was my massive fear as a child when my relatives mm. bought me sport merchandise. I never bought my own. But relatives who didn't know me very well, you know, cousins who'd be visiting from Canada or something, they'd often give me, you know, a T-shirt for... Uh, I always leap to Cincinnati Foreskins, which is something Martin made up on the show 10 years ago. But (laughs) that's as embedded in my knowledge of sport as any other convincing team. So let's go with that. They'd bring me a T-shirt for the Cincinnati Foreskins. And I would think, what am I going to do with this T-shirt? Because, you know, even if I thought it looked pretty or I thought this is a relatively obscure sport to be into in northwest London, I was anxious it would cause a conversation about sport, which I was not equipped to deal with. Yes. That is the danger. I think there are ways to skirt this. And one of those is to go vintage. So find a team that doesn't exist anymore or one from a country that people aren't even necessarily aware plays basketball. You're minimising the likelihood of someone you're passing in Dublin in the summer getting into a heated argument with you because Mm. they hate your team or something. I mean, some of the teams that don't exist anymore don't exist because people think the names are racist. So be careful about that. Yeah, that's definitely something to consider. Do they not sell basketball jerseys that are just plain? Just the shape of garment with no affiliation printed thereon? I'm sure they do. Or you could probably like <laughs> approach a company that will make merchandise for your basketball team and invent a fictional one and get some printed out. Maybe that would be fun to invent a fictional one and get some printed out. Because you can do those like single-serve print-out garment things. The Allen Attics. The Allen Manax. Hi, Helen and Ollie. This is Vincent from Shropshire. The other day, I was discussing with a friend the origin of the bobble hat. My uh, guess was that it's probably something very obscure, and we don't really know with any certainty why these things came into being. However, my friend insisted that they arose as a sort of form of safety wear for for mariners on ships to cushion the impact of uh, bumping their head against the low ceilings. As much as I want to believe this, I I feel it's maybe just too wholesome to be true. So answer me this. Who's right? I'd say that out of the two of you, Vincent, you're significantly more right. (laughs) I would also like to say, why is it that people are always making up things and attributing them to like, oh, something weird that happens on ships among sailors. That is always happening with the origins of things. Yes. Anyway, I would invite people to check their myth-making about maritime shit. Just think of something else. Yeah, Bored. sure. But you're right, Vincent, in that it is difficult to say definitively who first put a bobble on a hat. It is a very old practice. They have evidence from uh, the Vikings, so that's like 1,200 years ago. They have statues of the Viking god Freya wearing a hat or a helmet with a pom-pom on it. I, I think surely more of a helmet than a hat. You can't really tell in a statuette whether it's meant to be a hard or a soft hat. 
Uh, the statuette also has bracelets and an erection. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but erections originated on ships when <laughs> sure. Vikings first found things sexually attractive. They used to use them as oars. <laughs> but pom-poms in the military have been around for a really long time. Uh, I was watching one of the Michael Palin travel programmes recently where he's in Greece, and I guess it's the early 90s and he's watching the soldiers in their traditional guard uniform and they've got these huge pom-poms on their toes. Mm. The Hungarian cavalry used to wear pom-poms, I think, as an indication of rank. I guess it would be pretty easy to see. Like, a thing on your hat that is, like, different colours or shapes, people would be like, oh, I get what that is, without having to really get near someone. It makes sense as a uniform, actually, because I was about to ask... Like it doesn't if if it doesn't really add any protection in the way that Vincent's friend is suggesting because it doesn't does it because mm. otherwise we'd wear them instead of cycle helmets wouldn't we because they look nicer if you've fallen over wearing a bobble hat you probably <laughs> still hurt your head so therefore that sort of only leaves you with a couple of options as to why it would be there at all regardless of who invented it I suppose either for some reason something to do with the knitting process makes it practical mm. to put it there yes you're right or uniform like to signify something yeah. those are the two reasons aren't they right in in uh, Rome as well uh, clergymen wore these. Um, Caps called berettas, and uh, the colour of the pom-pom on the berettas signified their rank. In South America, there were pom-poms on garments, which uh, was a sign of marital status. It's also just, for something that large, it's quite light to wear. It's not like wearing an iron bell on your hat or something. And you can make them with scraps, so it's quite a thrifty way of decoration. So in the 20th century, I think they became popular on hats during the Great Depression, because that was an easy way to embellish your clothes mm-hmm. and cheap. Uh, and then, as you say, Ollie, part of the knitting process, when you uh, are shaping a hat, you usually start knitting from the brim, the bit that goes around your forehead, and you end up at the top. And, and you usually end up with a little hole, and then you cover it with a pom-pom to conceal that little hole. I'm all about the bobble hat these days. And it's in, are you? In, in some ways, perhaps the biggest change in my life since we started this show 14 years ago, Alan, is that <laughs> I'm now a hat man. He's the hat man. Hat man. I remember saying on the show how much I was ambivalent about hats. Like, I just didn't see the point of them, basically. And I remember being quite ranty about it. And now it's like, I'm Mr. Sun Hat in the summer. I'm Mr. Bobble in the winter. I feel like it must be due to me losing my hair, but I try not to focus on that. Do you think it was because when we were in our early and mid-twenties, hat wearing was associated with uh, posers wearing fedoras? And so Mm. it felt like quite an ostentatious thing to do. And and as you grow older, you're a bit freed from that. So you can wear a hat for function, such as warmth or sun, or something that you just think is jaunty rather than it having to be a statement about who you are. So you've been released from these societal expectations of a hat. You're right that there were lots of examples. I mean, Pharrell is the one that jumps to mind from that kind of era. Justin Timberlake, fedora man. Yeah. Whereas actually now, if I think of celebrities, male celebrities in particular, in hats now... Pharrell again, but in that huge, like, Vivian Westwood ranger hat. Well, yeah, or beanies, I was thinking. So, like, sort of, you know, pap shot of Harry Styles getting a Starbucks. He might be wearing a beanie. But a beanie is somehow different to a bobble. A beanie is, like, I don't feel cool enough to wear a beanie. Like, who who are the male celebrities wearing bobbles? I can't think of one. I remember when they were launching Rita Ora wearing kind of sexy clothes, but also a thick woolly hat was the attire they put her in. I can't remember whether they were bobbled or not. Well, I do think in pop starlets, it's a slightly different thing because there's a kind of sexy Scandinavian vibe to it sometimes. You know, if you're doing a wintry photo shoot, then bobble hat kind of reindeer type hoodie, you know, that sort of opens with a zip. That is sexualized in a way that on men, you just, I can't, like I say, there might be one. I just can't think of sexy male celebrity in a bobble hat. Maybe it should be me. Maybe I should just go for it. I just Google image Rita Ora bobble hat, and she's she's coming up in a lot of bobble-free woolen hats. Mm. So I guess the stage is clear for someone to come in and make the bobble hat their own. I bet they're secretly beanies, and you remembered them as bobbles. To be honest, I hadn't paid all that much attention at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose, you know, this show is all about paying attention to things that people don't necessarily pay attention to at the time, isn't it? Rita Ora's millinery Mm. is not something that I've heard a podcast about before. (laughs) I think it was generous of me to remember that she had that whole woolly hat phase at all. <laughs> I've got a question. Then email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. Answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. Answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. Answer me this podcast at googlemail.com.
Here's a question from Chandler from Denver, who says, Last night, my partner and I were watching the 1995 music video for Los Del Rio's iconic Love It or Hate It jam, Macarena. Mm. I think what you mean, Helen, is IE. We were astonished to see that the ladies in the video were not dancing the Macarena dance as we had learned it as kids. Mm. It resembles the dance we learned, but with half as many positions, each held for twice as long. Mm. This morning, I was doubly astonished, Chandler is really taking some hits for the team here, to learn that a band called Los Del Mar also released a version of the Macarena song in the same year. That music video shows the singer of Los Del Mar sort of piecing together the Macarena dance as we know it from pieces of other dances that he sees on TV and in the street. By the middle of this video, all the sexy people are dancing to the Macarena in the style I'm familiar with. Hmm. So, Helen, answer me this. What the hell is going on? I know Los Del Rio were the progenitors of the song, but they whiffed on the dance in their 1995 video, and that same year, a group with a nearly identical name also released a Macarena song and video with the correct dance, i.e. the one I was always taught. What is up with these two versions of the Macarena? Why on earth would Los Del Rio let a group with such a similar name release a version of their global hit song in the same year? And did the copycat band Los Del Mar actually invent the Macarena dance as we know it today? Or did it exist before that music video? This is confusing. So the timeline is, there was the original version in 1992, which was just Los Del Rio. These two middle-aged men singing in Spanish. They'd been performing together for 30 years. It's a good listen. If you like that kind of, you know, acoustic guitar clapping, Gypsy Kings type vibe, it's, it's better than the remix. And the way that they come up with that song is that they were doing a gig in Venezuela And they were invited to a party during which a flamenco dancer named Diana Patricia Kubilan Herrera danced some flamenco for the guests. And one of Los Del Rio spontaneously just came up with the chorus as a tribute to her. But they referred to her in the chorus either as Diana or as Magdalena as a Virgin Mary reference. Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) when actually writing up the song... They changed that to Macarena, which was the middle name of one of their daughters. And possibly of the Virgin Mary, lost to history. No, it, it is a, a Virgin Mary name. Like, there's so many kind of Maria Mary variants, and Macarena is uh, one of them. So that version of the song was released in Spain in 1993. It did pretty well. But then the year after that, the American label BMG bought the Spanish label that had released Macarena and decided to make it a hit in the USA. And so started this English-language version to make it big in clubs and on cruises. So they released that as a single in 1995. However, it didn't become big until the following year. It was like kind of just humming along, humming along. Yeah, well, viral hits didn't have the internet to aid them at that point, did they? So um, you needed people to go on holiday, hear the song, like it, and then try and find it when they got back home. Yeah, so that version of the song, the 1995 more dancey version, was a remix by the Bayside Boys. Yes. And they added the bit at the beginning of the song that we all hear when you hear on the dance floor, like, oh my God, it's the Macarena. That's them. Like, that wasn't in the original. Yeah, and the female vocals, and they changed the lyrics quite a bit. Yeah, which is interesting just on that point. In the Spanish version, it's Lost El Rio, isn't it? It's sort of mansplaining. Yeah. Oh, Macarena put it about with this guy, then he left town, so she went off with his two mates. Macarena, oh, yeah. she's hot. But in the English version, it's Macarena herself doing that bit where she's like, so I then, ha 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 ha, which yeah. is a bit more girl power, isn't it? Yeah, right. Like, So there are various different versions of the story and they're all a little bit sex-shaming of Macarena, but at least it's first person in the Bayside Boys mix and she seems to be enjoying it Yeah, and she seems empowered by her sexual appeal. Yeah. So the video was directed by a French director called Vincent Calvé and because it was made in 1996, I'm wondering whether they saw the impact that the Saturday Night Dance had had a couple of years before uh-huh. of making that a viral hit. Mm-hmm. He worked with the choreographer Mia Fry, who's also in it, And what he wanted was a simple concept that was kind of like a dance lesson and you've got Los Del Rio surrounded by beautiful dancers from around the world. Of of every ethnicity on God's earth, yes. (laughs) Joining in. Well, ten. And so he wanted it to have that white background for it to be very easy to see everybody. So these were some of the criteria that Mia Fry was working with. And the reason why it's slower than in the other video is that she had to halve the number of movements because she was like if people are going to be able to learn this dance and particularly if it's like you know children old people like we want everyone to know this dance Mm. so it has to not be too fast she just kept simplifying the choreography it was focused on the upper body which meant that like anyone could dance it if you were sitting down if you were like wearing a tiny skirt and heels that meant you didn't really want to do vigorous leg movement 
and the director, Vincent Calvey, also wanted the choreography not to take up too much space because he wanted to be able to film like 10 dancers in the same shot. And basically, I mean, I know we'll move on to the last Del Mar bit in a minute, but basically it worked, didn't it? Which actually, yeah. you know, you mentioned Saturday Night. We've talked about that on the show before. Oh, yeah. We had this Mandela Effect experience when we, we were checking our emails, deciding what questions to do. We were like, we must have done Macarena. I'm sure I remember us talking about it. Checked our website, checked our archives, yeah. checked our Google Docs. The Macarena Effect. Yeah, yeah, we had not. We had covered it in uh, the Answer Me This book. Yeah. Still available as an ebook. Yes. Or in charity shops, but not actually on the show. No, but there is a, well, there is a Macarena tag on our discussion of Wigfield Saturday Nights from episode 198. So we, we did mention it tangentially. But anyway, I listened back to see what we'd said about Saturday Night. And what we said then was, oh, you know, you can't create this kind of viral dance. Um, it has to happen organically. But actually what we're saying with regard to Los Del Rio is it really was an effort from BMG to say, we are going to create a viral dance, and it did work. Yeah. Like, they did create this dance. Right. And also, I think they did deliberately want there to be regional versions because that helps it spread around the world. Mm. And they would also hire local dancers to be in those videos because, you know, they wanted to convey this message of, like, everyone's linked, everyone's together, united in this around the world. So maybe that explains Lost Del Mar. But also it's like what plays on MTV is different in different markets, isn't it? So again, you have to remember before YouTube, there was no idea of there being one video for a song. I mean, I know now there's like 10 videos because you get the lyric version or whatever, but you know, there's usually one official version of a video. Then there didn't need to be because they'd release it in different markets at different times and they could fine-tune the way it was going to look for the market that was going to buy it. So something like these kind of women of the world dancing with a happy smiley face on might work really well for Europop fans, might not work so well in Canada where they're listening to more grunge music or whatever. Lost Del Mar's cover was for the Canadian market. Uh, That's where Lost Del Mar are from and, and so it was a big hit on much music. But what's weird is that the Lost Del Mar version was released in 1995 and then reissued with different vocals in 1996. So mm. you've got multiple versions of Macarena in a short space of time or like revivals with different videos. Confusing. And so when Chandler says, why would Lost Del Rio allow someone else to release it? It's more a case of like, they're getting the money from every direction, right? They wrote the song. Yeah. Their record label's like, we can release this 10 different ways. I mean, why would they say no to that? They know they've got a novelty song by that point. Apparently there's... Uh... Nearly 5,000 different versions of the Macarena around. Well, even Lost El Rio uh, have done multiple versions of Macarena. Do you have a translation, by the way, of the chorus? Something like, give your body some joy. Right, okay, which sort of means, I mean, it means sex, doesn't it, in the context of what they're saying about it. But it makes sense in dance terms as well, doesn't it? That's what you're doing, giving your body joy. Yeah, well, I think, like, if they were improvising that at the time of seeing this woman do this beautiful flamenco dance. Yes, she was dancing, true. They're not necessarily talking about her sexual past, even though that is the rest of the lyrics. I think that came later. I mean, I guess the flamenco is a sexy dance, whereas the Macarena really isn't. Thank you to our sponsors for this episode, The Great Courses Plus, who can help you learn something new today. I've been watching the course Pioneering Skills for Everyone, Modern Homesteading. Now, I don't have a homestead, modern or otherwise, but I thought, what is that life? Is it one I can handle? The episodes I was watching were about goats. Okay. This was a very visual course. There's a lot of goat footage. Uh Uh, There was a bit where they were demonstrating how to trim a goat's hooves But really, to me, it seemed like a demonstration of how to hug a goat. Mm. It's a two-person job. One trims the hooves. The other, before that, takes gentle hold of the top of the goat's horns, wrapping their arm around the goat's neck. Not too hard, so you don't strangle the goat. And then they sort of tucked their head into the uh, angle between the goat's neck and back and and patted it. And I was like, that's so tender, as the other person (laughs) trimmed the hooves. I think I would do a lot of goat hugging if I had a homestead. I watch a lot of that Lives in the Wild with Ben Fogel. And um, often, 
it's it's like striking how often it happens. He goes to visit someone who has pigs roaming. And he says, do you eat them? And the person will say, no, they're my pets. Like, <laughs> so many people, like, oh. the reality of actually killing livestock is so difficult. Or even milking it. Yeah, well, then the next lesson was about milking it and um, about how to make various different cheeses. A very useful demonstration of that. Very soothing shots of a man with a gigantic beard squeezing and stretching goat mozzarella. And I thought, maybe this is why people are into slime videos. But also, <laughs> there was some very graphic footage of goat giving birth. What did you learn, though, Helen? What 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 tip can you take with you? I learned not to try and pull out the afterbirth because the goat will take care of it. So basically, like, be there just in case the goat is breached mm-hmm. or needs a gentle tug, but don't interfere too much. The goat will eat all the slime off the baby goat. <laughs> and then the next lesson in the course was processing and butchering goats for meat. And I thought, well, I've just got attached to these goats having birthed them in the previous mm. video. So I haven't watched that yet. That's the great thing about The Great Courses Plus. You can do it at your own pace. When you're ready to see the dead goat, you press play. You just take your time. Once you're ready for the realities of meat production, then go in. But before that, you could be like, okay, goat cheese. Here's some recipes for three kinds of cheese. And I will remember not to use cheesecloth despite the name because it's too loose weave. Thank you, Great Courses Plus. (laughs) (laughs) You can sign up for The Great Courses Plus and see for yourself. Visit our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer, where you will get a 14-day trial with unlimited access for free. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. Here's a question from Bryony who says, I'm from the UK, but I've lived in Banff, Canada for the last three years. During that time, I've done plenty of camping and hiking trips, but I'm also a very light sleeper. So every small noise at night is deeply unnerving and I never sleep well. My imagination Mm. takes off in the dark and all I can think of is the shredding of the tent as a big grizzly busts through to eat us while we sleep. This is a bit like me on a plane. Whatever grizzly might blow open the doors and eat you. No, just the imminent death. Like, I I don't know how anyone can sleep on a plane. I I want to turn around and just shout at everyone. Why You're staring death in the face. Why are you so relaxed? Why are you able to sleep? Because you can't do anything about it. You're on the plane now. Maybe it's better to sleep. Well, maybe that's the advice we should give Bryony. Yeah, but you're more likely to run into a bear than you are to die in a plane crash. You're not helping me relax. Well, it's not a rational thing, is it? Bryony says, next year, my boyfriend and I are going to do a mega long hike from Waterton to Jasper, a total of about 990 kilometres. Jeez. Didn't round that up to a thousand. 990. Yeah, but do you, do you want to end 10 kilometres west of Jasper? There might be nothing there. Well, you might take 10 kilometres of detours. <laughs> Ollie, answer me this. Do you have any tips for sleeping that I could use to help make sure I manage to get at least some sleep during the two months we'll be hiking? I think the fact that it's two months m- might end up assisting you in itself right because you'd be so knackered well just and also i think familiarity breeds complacency in this regard like you know you're scared that a bear is going to come and and shout in your face or eat your legs Mm. uh when you are camping for perhaps i mean you didn't specify a weekend or a week but if you're away for two months i mean i'm actually not a bad person to ask about this because having been to boarding school Ah. i grew up trying to sleep in an environment where at any time a child could come and spray cream in my face or piss on me oh god and i would say that the fear of that you know for the first few weeks it's a reality um is something that might make you anxious but then you just i mean your body needs to sleep so you do just you get used to it don't you like you get used to sleeping on a blow-up bed and it's suddenly more comfortable after day three or four than it was on day one or two i've never camped for long enough to sleep well right i really hate camping and i'm a pretty bad sleeper anyway but in a tent even though most of the camping i've done has been at british music festivals you still think every noise is a bear coming to eat you (laughs) very disruptive it's actually just probably someone on drugs trying to find the silent disco yeah yeah it's someone tripping over your tent strings because they're looking for the loo yes or or choosing to use your tent as a loo Mm. best not to think about that i mean i think Again, that's the novelty of sleeping in a tent, which is part of the reason why it's difficult. So I do think on a thousand mile hike or 990 kilometer hike, you will probably get a lot more used to this sensation. Well, also, I suppose after like several weeks of continuous time in this environment, you will have learned innately which noises you can tune out and which ones are genuine warning noises. So maybe like as you sleep, that would make a difference as well. You're not thinking every noise is potentially a bear because you know most of them are not. Yeah. But also, there is a link between anxiety and insomnia. Mm. So actually, in a way, you know, having put your thoughts on paper like this, having asked us for our opinion, possibly isn't going to help. If you overthink this, you're more likely to be up at night thinking about it. And I know this because I did three years of overnight radio, in which time I had some pretty funky sleep times myself, but also interviewed a lot of sleep experts Mm. because obviously we had a lot of insomniacs listening. (laughs) And they always said, basically... 
if you overthink it, it makes it harder. Right. Like people who sleep well don't think, what do I do to sleep well? They literally don't think right. about it. So some kind of mindfulness exercise and, you know, being in the woods with a campfire is a good location for that. Don't look at your phone. That kind of thing might help you sleep better than thinking, how am I going to sleep tonight? I wonder whether things like earplugs or sleep masks would be helpful or make the anxiety worse because she might be thinking, now I can't hear warning signs that I might need to hear. I think you've got to remember why you're using those tools. That's the thing. You block out your eyes because the light in the morning might wake you up. So think about other ways that you might be able to do that without literally putting a blindfold on. And the same with your ears. How your tent is set up I realise I'm speaking to someone who's a much more experienced camping person than I am. But even so, like getting a good tent and making sure that the ventilation's good. That you do. I mean, this is like, for example, as we record this, it, we've just pretty much got to the point in the year where it started getting lighter earlier than I naturally wake. Yes. And this morning, in fact, the day of recording, is the first day that me and all my children, we put the blackouts down last night for the first time, had a lie until 7.30. Ooh, nice. Um, which was like evidence that the daylight was waking us up, but it happened so subtly. Yeah, because the daylight's now kicking in before 7am. So I think it's just thinking about how you can control those influences even inside your tent, because that stuff wakes you up. When, even at a music festival, that's the stuff that wakes you up. Is it's like suddenly hot or it's suddenly bright. That's that's the stuff you can control with a better tent. Well, sort of. You can't really control your tent heating up to intense levels at 5am because of the sun. But the sunlight patterns are things that Brani can plan for because you know what they are. You don't know if a grizzly is going to be nearby and interested in eating you. No, there's nothing you can do about an actual bear. <laughs> I mean, if she's right, then it's probably good that she knows that there's a bear nearby and it's right that she's alert. Yeah. I mean, she's going to be camping where there are bears. I can't really change that. Good for you, Brani, for knowing that you are apprehensive about this, but you're still committed to doing this hike. Yes, agree. I know that my baby is the absolute best I put Facebook photos up daily and my friends are impressed Apart from ones who block me because they're jealous Cos their babies are so ugly Well why not build a gallery of your kid on Squarespace With special pages for its cute feet and cute hands and cute face So my Facebook feed won't have your kid all over the place He looks like a scrotum Thank you very much to Squarespace for sponsoring Answer Me This. And make it possible for you to build beautiful websites if you are uh, perhaps during lockdown realising that you need to supercharge your web presence. There is nowhere better to look. Yes, and if you think, well, I, I want to supercharge it, but I want my supercharging to take place very quickly. All you have to do is browse through Squarespace's award-winningly designed templates. Choose one. Use the drag and drop tools to add the things you want to add to the website. And then you can take a nap that quick whatever your business is they have a template that works for you so i I was reading a great article actually last week in the new york times um about uh, pastry chefs in new york Mm. who have pivoted their businesses by making stuff at home to be delivered four of them are using squarespace to do that i went and had a look at their websites and you can see you can see that this business that you know obviously had a, a bricks and mortar presence on the streets in new york but had a pretty crappy web presence has now become a proper fully-fledged online delivery store. So, I mean, it genuinely is a great tool for that. If you want to see what Squarespace has to offer, head to squarespace.com slash answer and play around with a two-week free trial. And then when you are ready to launch, you can get a 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain if you use our offer code... Answer! answer. Hello, um, Helen, Ollie and Martin the Soundman. Um, this is Kate calling from Bristol. Uh, about 10 or 11 years ago, my husband and I were on honeymoon in California. We went to on the Hollywood sort of stars tour in a little minibus. And our guide told us two boys had accidentally set fire to the woodlands and the Hollywood sign um, because they were having a campfire or smoking a joint or something up there. And their punishment had been that they had to pay part of their wages for the rest of their lives like a stipend to cover the cost. Is that true? And has that? I've never heard of that happening in any other case. So please, can you let me know if that's true and how such an arrangement would be set up? Thanks. Bye. Well, I checked with my friend and long-term answer me this listener, Lo, who was a lawyer in California um, because they have federal crimes and state crimes. She said that she didn't know about that specific case, but in theory, if you're convicted of a crime and are required to pay restitution 
or get any kind of monetary judgment against you, one of the ways they can collect is to get a wage garnishment order, mm. which, yes, depending on how much you make and whether you have other garnishments that take precedence, like child support, could take a very long time. Garnishments. Under Californian law, the most that can be garnished from your wages is the lesser of either 25% of your disposable earnings for that week, so I assume that means like not child support, not taxes, or 50% of the amount by which your weekly disposable earnings exceed 40 times the state hourly minimum wage. Wow. Well, it's just a payment instalment plan, isn't it? It's exactly the same if uh, yeah. if you watch Can't Pay Will Take It Away. That's exactly what they do, isn't it? They try and get you signed up to something so that if you can't, haven't got the money now, you sign up to give them the money over time. I mean, it probably wouldn't be the rest of their lives because if it was an accidental fire, like the fines seem to be for like malicious burning and for arson. But like if it was accidental, they wouldn't be charged with arson because it's about intent. Like felony arson can be a few years in jail. And uh, if it's malicious burning, you can also get a fine up to $10,000 that is increased up to $50,000 or twice the amount you would have obtained if the arson was done for financial gain, such as insurance fraud. Mm. So unless these kids were doing it for insurance fraud, I'm not sure that they would have got a humongous fine, which means it's plausible they could pay that off before the end of their working life. So a Hollywood stars tour, it turns out, might not be the best place to get exacting history the hollywood sign had had arson happening to it like in the 70s when the sign was quite dilapidated Mm. and and some of the letters were kind of missing an arsonist set fire to one of the l's so it said hollywood Hollywood. well i'm not sure how many of the letters were standing at that point because i think i think maybe they had to replace a lot of it well the sign as it is now is not the sign that it was in the 1920s the whole thing's been replaced over time but that triggers broom well also it's been changed because famously it was hollywood land initially yeah, which was to sell uh, real estate, wasn't it? So the idea was you saw right. this big billboard, Hollywood land, come and build your house here, which is just quite interesting because like now the Hollywood sign is the symbol of that period, but not for real estate. It's the symbol of that period of golden Hollywood film production, which actually wasn't happening in the hills, was it? It was happening down in uh, you know Burbank and, and downtown Hollywood. So the fact that the hills was what it was advertising, it actually turned out the hills was just a giant billboard for what was happening underneath. The sign has also been pranked around a lot. Uh, some people were arrested at the start of February for changing it to Hollyboob. How do you actually do that, though? Do you just put a big poster over the letters? You, like, hang um, black fabric or tarpaulin yeah. over some of the letters strategically and then, yeah, put white sheets up. The Hollyboob people claim that they changed it for breast cancer awareness, but they also claim they changed it to protest Instagram censorship policy. Which is it? I mean, it could be both, but why would it be both? And also, how is that helping breast cancer awareness? I know that at one stage it was changed to Hollyweed to campaign to legalise marijuana. Twice, in the 70s and in 2017. It was also in 1991, oil war. <laughs> and then you're going to love this, Ollie. 1987, Hollywood, during the Oliver North and Iran-Contra hearings. Just like the invitations for my permits were in 1994. Exactly. You're not supposed to be near it. It's trespass, which can earn you one year's probation, 20 days of Caltrans labour, a $1,000 fine with penalties of up to five times that amount, restitution to the LAPD and the Parks and Recreation Department, and a stay away from the sign order. Like you say, everyone does know that it used to say Hollywood Land. Did you know that there used to be a white dot halfway between the sign and the ground? What? In 1921, the US Chamber of Commerce produced maps illustrating business conditions in areas of the country. So where's a good place to do business? Where's a bad Mm. place to do business? Because, you know, you're likely to lose your money. Where's a really bad place because you're likely to get robbed, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And the bad areas were coloured black. The middle areas were coloured grey. And the areas that were good for business were coloured white. Um, which obviously has an unfortunate racial overtone now, but it's ambiguous about whether that was intended at the time. The point was, LA was a white spot on the map. Hmm. And all around LA in California were black spots and grey spots. So the owner of the LA Times, and his paper had started calling LA the white spot of America, came up with the idea of putting a white spot on the Hollywood land sign to say to visitors, we are a city free of crime, corruption, communism... We are the white spot of America. That's why it used to have it. Did all towns have a literal spot on a hillside? I quite like that idea. It's very, very pre-Google Maps. I've commented before about how my local town of Boreham Wood, in my view, recognises in a very poor way its recognition to the world of classic film and television. Um, You know, there are token efforts around the town. But I have recently discovered, which I didn't know existed last time I mentioned that on the show, 
um, a mural to The Muppet Show, which is in Manor Way. Hmm. Is there a Muppet connection? Yeah, The Muppet Show was made in Elstree, what? is what I'm saying. Like, I, I don't, yeah, The Muppet Show, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, like every fucking thing is filmed here. And they just like, it's like it never happened. It's really weird. Hmm. I, I know anyone listening who works for Bournemouth Council will be like, no, we've got a star outside the library. <laughs> I know, but it's shit. So anyway, on Man Away, there is a, um, and, and this is a very like, uninteresting suburban road you wouldn't think there was any hollywood connection there so it's really amazing to get this stumble on this surprise when you walk around the corner someone has spray painted a mural of like fozzy bear kermit uh the swedish chef statler and waldorf and i've actually found another example of street art in borenwood as well recently it's because i've been walking around during lockdown there is one that the youth club did uh on the um tennis courts which is like borenwood spelt out like the hollywood sign and within each letter, there's a different character from the thing that's been filmed there. So, like, in the R, there's the EastEnders logo. And in the W, there's the bowler hat silhouette from A Clockwork Orange. Mm. Um, so they, they do exist if you go looking for them. Have you considered volunteering for the Borenwood Tourist Board? I'm I'm waiting for the Borenwood Tourist Board to recognise that uh, Ollie Mann has been making legendary podcasts nearby and to commemorate that in some way. Yeah, well, they haven't recognised the legendary Muppets yet, so you could be waiting for a very long time. <laughs> if you don't even know what a question is, then you're probably at the wrong place. Because religion's on Godcasts, dogs are on Dogcasts, fish are on Rodcasts, but we don't do fish. Because on this podcast... You answer me this. Here's a question from John, who says, Watching the Super Bowl, I was impressed by the planes doing the flyover at the stadium during the last note of the national anthem. Ollie, answer me this. Where would the planes have been at the first note of the national anthem and what speed are they travelling at? I believe the anthem is pre-recorded, so they know how long it is. Do they practice the fly past or just calculate where they need to be? The phrase military precision exists <laughs> mm. because guess what? It's really important to be precise when you're flying for the military. Right. Otherwise you kill the wrong people. Mm. So flyovers aren't the only example of a plane needing to be in a place at the right time. This is very much <laughs> what they do. Um, <laughs> TOT, time on target, is the abbreviation. Okay. And practicing your T on T is very much what you do when you're training to be a pilot. And interestingly... A lot of flyovers are actually um, executed by people who are training, ah. which I didn't realise. You'd you'd think, because especially in this country with the red arrows and everything, it's always presented as like the cream of the mm. crop, you know, doing their skills in the air. But actually in, in, in American flyovers at sports matches, it's often part of the training because, you know, that's an essential skill you need in the battlefield and that is a way, therefore, that they can take the budget for training pilots and do it on something as seemingly frivolous as a sports occasion because they cost $36,000 to train everyone to be able to right. do that from the military budget. But the equation is obviously they think, uh, you know, as, as uh, John points out, he was impressed. <laughs> I mean, that is the propaganda point of these flyovers, isn't it? Look at our skills. They think... This is money well spent as advertising for recruitment for the military, basically. Are they just like circling far enough away that the sound is not drowning out the national anthem? Yes. Where are they so that it's not so loud? Like any kind of magic trick, as soon as you actually explain how it's done, it's like, oh, of course, yeah, all right. They put the calculations into a computer, right? So they put in the GPS coordinates they need to be at. They put in their target speed that they want to fly at, and then the computer tells them where they need to start. I mean, it's, it's not that complicated, actually. What is difficult, as you suggest, is that they need to create a holding pattern near the event site. But, you know, in terms of noise, there's lots of noises going on at the Super Bowl. Yeah, but military planes are so loud. It's such a penetrating noise. That's true, but if they're flying high up enough and they're in a holding pattern and they're far enough away, then I'm not sure that's... I mean, the point is people look up and they kind of imagine that they must have flown for hundreds of miles... But, you know, they've just come from around the corner and exactly as you suggest, as far away as you can be so that people can't hear them so it spoils the surprise. And that's it. There's a spotter positioned on the ground who gives them a command to go and the planes are off and they soar over right on cue because that's their job. Also, most people are watching on TV. So if they bluff it and come in averse early, they're not going to point the cameras at them until they come in at the right time, right? Yeah, well, I've seen an example of, I can't remember where it was, but there was a sports match, I, th I think Philadelphia possibly, where it was raining, so they covered the stadium, but they did the flyover anyway for the telly, which is quite weird. Mm. So, like, everyone in the stadium for whom it was supposedly intended couldn't see it, but everyone watching on TV could. Well, there's more people watching on TV than present. Makes sense. Yeah, that's true. 
But then they could just show some archive footage, really. <laughs> they could just have a little model plane on a thread. <laughs> but anyway, there's rehearsal as well, obviously. So, I mean, you know, you don't do it at the venue, but you can rehearse the exact distances and coordinates somewhere else. So um, if you live near RAF Scrampton in Lincolnshire, you will see the Red Arrows rehearsing because it's not the sort of thing you can blag. You know, you do practice, but you don't need to practice in venue. I saw the Red Arrows rehearsing in Lincolnshire. I was in Lincoln for my uh, sister-in-law's mother's funeral. And I remember coming out of the crematorium and then I looked over towards Lincoln Cathedral in the distance and like the Red Arrows just appeared behind it. And I was like, bloody hell, this is incredible. Like it did sort of feel like a thing, even though it was nothing to do with her. And it was just them doing a rehearsal on a weekday. I think regardless of what you think about the military or whether you care about aviation, there is something moving. I don't necessarily mean emotional, but I just mean stirring, like it physically moves you to see something flying that fast a thousand feet above your head. Well, I'm moved now to draw this episode to a close, but for us to make another episode next month, we need your questions and you can send them to us via email, via a voice memo attached to an email using the address upon our website. Answermethispodcast.com uh, we have hundreds more hours of this available for you to yes. buy at answermethisstore.com. So if you've listened to every episode on our free feed, do check out our first 200 episodes and our six exclusive hour-long albums there. Yes, and uh, also halfway through the month, we will drop one of our archive episodes into your feed with a commentary of what our present-day selves think of our past selves. Yes, but you do need to subscribe to the yes. show to hear that. And also we make our other work. Ollie, what is happening in the Man Audio Empire this month? Yeah, I make five podcasts. You can discover them all at ollieman.com. Uh, the Modern Man, M-A-N-N, is my monthly magazine show in which I test out trends, answer sex questions, and hear some extraordinary life stories from our listeners and and this month actually it's an answer me this listener um whose mother decided last summer to tell her that her dad wasn't her real dad (gasps) wow yes we have uh, a fascinating conversation about what happened next you can hear that at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk helen i make uh veronica mars investigations and the illusionist in veronica mars we are about to start recapping the veronica mars movie wow wasn't that where it went downhill no it went downhill before the movie and that's why it was cancelled and right. then revived years later with the kickstarter movie uh, we've already done the bit where they went downhill so you can find that on the uh podding apps and the illusionist is also there at the Martin. Uh, I make a podcast about the music of Tom Waits. It's called Song by Song. We go through his music song by song, but we also talk about other music. Wow, that's everyone covered. If you know Tom Waits' music and you don't know Tom Waits' music, there's something for you. You can find it at songbysongpodcast.com or just search for Song by Song uh, in your podcatcher of choice. And we will be back with answers to your questions, your fresh questions, on the first Thursday of April. Until then. Bye! Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.